0: Well, good morning. You would open your Bible to the passage that Damon read just a little while ago in Romans chapter 6. I have to say one of my favorite things about preaching is it's just in this church, I'm just so filled with worship by the time I get up here. Uh, I just feel like it just continues in my heart and it, and it lifts me up. And uh, so I just, we have, we're just so blessed with the worship team that we have and Pastor Doug and how he leads them and just overwhelmed with, uh, with God's goodness to us. This morning I want to talk to you about new life in Christ. We're getting back to Romans. We have been on a little bit of a hiatus from Romans since October, Uh, so we might need a little bit of review, so we'll do that in just a moment, but I want to tell you the title of today's message is A Brand New You, A Brand New You. I thought that would be a good title, especially for January. If I asked this morning, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but if I asked this morning... How many of you made a New Year's resolution? I would guess that there would probably be a few people that would have to say, yeah, I I made one. But then if I followed it up with a question after that, uh, today is, uh, what is it, January 22nd. Are you still doing it? If you started something on January 1st, are you still doing it? read an article in Forbes Health. And it had a study that it quoted. I'd like to give you a little bit of information there. It says, for 2023, the Forbes Health One Poll Survey found some re- resolutions that were more common than others. Interesting thing, I won't tell you all this, but some of these have shifted over the years. And, uh, and it's interesting, the g- different generations, but how some generations have certain ones that they do, resolutions that they do more of, and other Generations do others. But at any rate, here's what they found. Improved mental health was at the top of the list, 45%. Improved fitness was not far behind at 39%. 37%, this is of people who made New Year's resolutions, 37% it was about losing weight. Well, I think that's pretty close to improved fitness. I think you could probably put those together and they would beat out the mental health. Improved diet, that's in there too, 33%. And improved finances, 30%. They need to talk to, uh, to Jess uh, Holloway, our deacon, who leads the financial counseling. That, that probably needs to move up a little higher, the improved finances. But many people make resolutions. Many people at the beginning of the year, especially in America. This is kind of an American phenomenon. It does happen in other countries, but it's a, it's a bigger thing in our country, apparently, according to this article. But In that same article, it quotes a 2020 survey that found that 55% of respondents kept their New Year's resolution less than a year. lasted six months. 14% made it three months. 19% lasted at least one month and only 11 and 11% lasted less than a month. So most people (laughs) didn't keep their resolutions. They made some kind of commitment to make a change in their life and, and they didn't continue it. As a matter of fact, They're uh, apparently out there on the internet. You can find out about what's called National Quitters Day, January 17th. (laughs) So, you know what I thought was funny though? When you you read these articles, there are always advertisements. Guess who were the advertisers? Weight Watchers, Noom, and Perfect Body. (laughs) They were probably targeting me because I was reading the article. And I could probably use their help. So, if you're one of the many people who have some exercise equipment somewhere in your house that has turned into a clothes rack, <laughs> you're not alone. There's something in us that wants to be different. We want to be better, we want to change. We may look at it different ways, we may have different approaches. But there's something in most of us that desires a new start. Well, the the message this morning is not going to help you with weight loss or improving your finances. But hopefully it will help you get a new perspective or remind you of the perspective we should all have as believers in Christ. Of the fact that we are new creations in Jesus Christ. And that's more than just a few pages, a few uh, words written on a page in your Bible. That's a reality in our lives. Now, before we get into this passage, I want to do a brief review of Romans, because like I said, it's been a long time since we were in Romans. Romans chapter 1 gives us an introduction, Paul doing his normal greetings and all of that sort of thing, and then he moves on to talk about the depravity of mankind, And how mankind just start out by not glorifying God, but then it just, the sin just gets worse and worse and and darker and darker over time. Chapter 2 talks about the righteous judgment of God and that we should not judge others because we're guilty of the same thing. Chapter 3 tells us that no one is righteous. And the only righteousness that's available to us is through faith in Christ. Chapter 4 expands on that by talking about how we are justified by faith alone without works. And Paul goes to great lengths using Abraham as an example to explain that he was justified before he did the work. And so we are also justified by faith without works. And because of that, chapter 5 tells us right there in the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, that those of us who are justified by faith in Christ now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because prior to that, we were God's enemies. And God has made peace with us. And in that chapter, Paul also talks about the fact that in Adam, all die. And in Christ, all are made alive, that Christ is the new Adam, the second Adam, beginning a new race, those that belong to God through Jesus Christ. And in making these arguments, Paul makes a statement toward the end of chapter 5 and says this, starting in verse 20. Now the law came in to, to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, and grace also reigned through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now verse 20 again, he said that the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, Paul knows, being a former Pharisee, that there's going to be a question that arises from that. I had a conversation with a family member many years ago about whether or not to teach and to believe that a Christian could not lose their salvation, believe in the security of the believer. I believe wholeheartedly that we are secure in Christ. When we trust Christ as our Savior, we are born again. And we cannot be lost after that. Now, I'm not, that's not what this message is about, but just to make a point, I was having this conversation with a family member, and he made a point to try to win his side. He said, but if you teach that, then people will just think they can sin all they want and do whatever they want to do. So you can't teach that which is a little weird because if that's what the Bible teaches, you can't avoid teaching it because you think people are going to get the wrong message. But that thinking is the same thinking that Paul's addressing here. That thinking that it can't be just by grace. It it can't be just by faith because if you teach people that, they're going to think, well, I can just believe in Jesus and do whatever I want to do. And that's the the question that Paul's dealing with in chapter 6, verse 1 through 14. So verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul, didn't you just say the more sin increased, the more grace increased? So, hey, let's just sin a lot so we can get more grace, right? And Paul's answer to that is by no means. The King James used the phrase, God forbid. What this is, is a Greek idiom that is the strongest way he could possibly say emphatically no. It's even insulting that you would say that about the gospel of Christ. That's the idea. That is not what the gospel does. The gospel is not a ticket to sin. A ticket to heaven that gives you a right to sin. The gospel is not to create licentiousness in us. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's actually the opposite. So Paul says, by no means, verse 2, How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, when we have come to Jesus Christ, we have died to sin. And so, what does that mean? What I want to do this morning is I want to work through some principles from this passage that hopefully will help us grab hold of what Paul is teaching us. and, And use this in our lives. Because this is extremely practical. Yes, it's theology, but it's extremely practical. Matter of fact, all theology is practical. Paul spends the first 11 chapters of Romans building this tremendous theological case for Christianity, and then he gets very practical with it after that, but he's he's given us practical things all the way through the book. And chapter 6, verse 1 through 14 is extremely practical. So I want us to talk about these principles. Principle number one is the principle of our union with Christ. Look at verse 3. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? So we were baptized into Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Is that talking about the waters of baptism? Last week, I believe it was last week, Joe Lapari was baptized here in the water. But I will tell you, he was not baptized into Christ Jesus in that baptistry. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's using the word baptize to help us to understand. He's using it as a metaphor to help us to understand what happens in that baptistry, what it represents, the truth that it represents. We were baptized into Christ. Galatians 3, verse 26 and 27 says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. This morning I put on this jacket. I'm wearing this jacket. I'm inside this jacket. When I was baptized into Christ, I put on Christ. I am in Christ. Does that make sense? So... Why do we baptize in the water? Well, we baptize in the water as a way of publicly identifying with Jesus Christ. That word baptize, it is a Greek word that we would, if we were trying to pronounce it correctly, we would say baptizo. It's actually a Greek word that was transliterated into English. And I think the translators didn't really help us out a whole lot when they did that. Because the word means to be completely covered in, to be completely wet, to be dipped. That's what it means. Baptism doesn't mean sprinkled and it doesn't mean poured. Now, sprinkling and poured is fine, but it's not baptism. That's why we're Baptists. We believe that, okay? But here's the thing. Any other mode of baptism does not picture the relationship between us and Christ when we come into Christ. See, Paul says we were baptized into Christ. We were immersed into Christ. And so when we are baptized in the water, when we stand in the water, we are picturing the death of Christ. When we go under the water, we're picturing the burial of Christ. And when we come back up out of the water, we're picturing the resurrection of Christ. So we were buried with Him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life. Now, many of you think, well, I know that stuff, but some of you may not. So that's why we baptize the way we baptize. Because baptism, water baptism, is an outward symbol of an inward reality. Because when you came to Jesus Christ, Paul uses this phrase, in Christ. It's one of his favorite terms to use. He uses it many, many times. You are in Christ. You were baptized. You were immersed in to Christ. And so you belong to Him. So the first principle is this principle of our identification, our union with Christ. We we are united with Him, verse 3. Principle number two, the principle of our death with Christ. Look at verse three. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? So when Christ, if we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into what Christ did. Christ died on the cross. So we were uni- union, we have a union with him, but that means we also have a union with him in his death. Now, that sounds really theological, okay? But this is the truth. This is the fact that if you belong to Jesus Christ, you died with him. You died with him. 2 Corinthians. says this. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. Now, if you ever want to know how Paul figured this out, he tells you right here. We have concluded this, okay? What have we concluded? That one has died for all, therefore all have died. You see, if you are in Christ and Christ died for you, then you already died. He died in your place. That's the nature of the substitutionary death of Christ. He was your substitute. The penalty that belonged to you for your sin and my sin, He took it on the cross. That penalty's already been paid. It's already been accomplished. The death that you and I deserve for our sin, the wages of sin is what? Death the death that you and I deserve, Jesus accomplished that on the cross. Therefore, you and I have already died. Boy, that makes your brain hurt. I thought I was dead in my trespasses and sins before, but now I'm alive. Yeah, that's true too. <laughs> this, uh, this is an identifying bit of information. We identify with Christ. We're, we're identified with Him. He died for our sins And because of that, we died with Him. That's why Paul says in verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, what Jesus did on the cross was not simply pay for the penalty of your sin. He did pay for the penalty of your sin. But He also conquered sin. He took care of the power of sin. You may think, well, I still struggle with it, join the club. We all still struggle with it, but the power of sin to have a control over us, dominion over us, we'll get into that in a little while, has been broken. The cross of Jesus Christ paid for the penalty of your sin, but it's not just a ticket to heaven and open-ended licentiousness. It's also to give you the power over sin. As a matter of fact, look at what he says down in verse 6. Verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that... So this is part of the purpose that our old self was crucified with Him in order that... The body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, the person you were before Christ, your old self. uh, King James uses the old man. Who you were before Christ. That flesh that still hangs on there. That was crucified with Christ. You died in Christ. All your sins were paid for. When Jesus died on the cross, He paid for them all. You weren't even born yet. And He paid for all of your sin. It's all been taken care of on the cross. Well, that old man, that sinful person that you are, died with Jesus. And so how shall we live like that person of that old life? That's the point. You know, Christians really are the living dead. It's not a night of the living dead. It's a life of the living dead. You and I are the real living dead. And we don't have limbs rotting off of our bodies. Because we've been given a new life in Christ. If we had limbs rotting off of our bodies like the zombies in the movies, we would be living the life of the old person. That's not the old person. That person has died. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. Amen. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You are not who you used to be. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, you may say, I still struggle with those old sins. I don't understand. How can I be a new person and still struggle in all of that stuff that drove me to Christ in the first place? Well we'll get there, okay? But you need, first of all, to understand that you are not what you used to be. I'm not a huge movie buff, especially newer movies, so those of you who are under a certain age may not be able to relate to me very well, but there's a, there's a movie I like from 1998, and it seems odd to me to claim that something from 1998 is an old movie, but that was just a few days ago, it seems like. But, uh, and, and it's been redone, and it's, it's been done many different ways. It's been done as a musical, but I like the 1998 version. It's Les Miserables. If you've ever seen Les Miserables, uh, Liam Neeson plays this character, uh, Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean was a criminal. When the the movie opens, he's in prison in hard labor. And you don't find out until later how he got in prison. He got into prison because he he was living in France. After the French Revolution, the king had come back into power and, and the people that... People were angry, and there was a lot of hostility and a lot of mistreatment of the people. And Jean Valjean was extremely poor, so poor that he didn't have enough to eat. And he told a story later on to this young lady that he basically had adopted as his daughter, that he was looking at through the glass in the store at the bread, and he was hungry. And all he could think about was how hungry he was. And the only thing between him and food was that glass. And he broke through the glass and he stole the bread. He was sent to 19 years hard labor for that crime. And he got out on parole early in the movie. And when he gets out on parole, he goes to a uh, pastor's home, ends up in a pastor's home. The man takes him in, shows him kindness. He steals from this man, steals his silverware. And... He's captured by the police, brought back to the pastor, and he's expecting to have to go back to prison. These policemen are, you know, really ready to take him. And, and the pastor says, oh, Jean Valjean, you, I'm, I'm very disappointed in you. You didn't take the candlesticks too. <laughs> he hands him the candlesticks. He says, these are more valuable than the silver. And when the police leave, he looks him in the eye. He says, I have purchased you for God man has changed from that moment on. He realizes the love of God. No one had ever shown him love like that. He beat this man and stole his property and instead of throwing him into prison the man gave him more. First time he'd ever experienced love like that. Grace like that. Mercy like that. And he changes. But he doesn't report back for his parole. So for years and years he's got this cloud hanging over his head. And there's this This man who becomes an inspector, who was a guard in the prison, Javert. He begins to pursue Jean Valjean. And he pursues him and pursues him and thinks he's lost him for many years. And then finally finds out he's in Paris. And so through all kinds of different events, eventually he captures Jean Valjean and he has him in shackles and this is the end of the movie, Javert is amazed at the fact that this man doesn't hate him, it's amazed at the grace that this man has and he didn't believe a person could change. So he doesn't know what to do, and he sends him away for a little while to take care of some business and has the officers bring him back, and then he dismisses the officers. He unlocks the shackles from Valjean, puts them on himself, and falls into the river to drown. You see, the law, the old man, the old sin that Javert represented... When he fell in that river, he died. Jean Valjean was a a forgiven man. He had been transformed. But he still had the weight of that old man carrying around all of his life and that guilt and that fear. But when the law died, when that old man died in that river... You could see the joy on his face. He realizes he's free. Folks, that's what Christ did for us on the cross. He took every sin you've ever committed, every ugly, horrible sin. I'm so, so grateful for our sister's prayer this morning talking about all the sins that that plague us, calling attention to those things. Folks, sin is ugly. It's wretched. It's offensive to God. Your sin is, my sin is. But in Christ, your old man has died. You don't have to live that way anymore. He has set you free. That brings us to the principle of our new life in Christ. See, if we are unified with Christ, united with Christ, and we're united with Christ in His death, we're also united with Christ in His life. Look at verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We have been given a new life. We died with Christ not so that we would stay there, but so that we would live this new life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, Yes, you're dead, but now you're alive. You died only to be resurrected. If we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. And because of that, death has no more dominion over us. Look at verse 8. He says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we, shall, we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. He will never die again. Jesus died for sin once. And He took care of all of it. All your sin was put to death. Your old man was put to death on that cross. And now He will never have to do that again. That just blows my mind. I was was saved in 1975. I was a 12-year-old boy. Believe it or not, I was saved in a Methodist church. (laughs) I told a Baptist preacher that one time, and he just doubted me. And I said, listen, I heard the gospel, and I believed on Jesus, and he saved me. By the way, I got sprinkled. (laughs) So I know about I was dry by the time I got back to my seat, though. But <laughs> later on, I learned that I needed to be to be identified with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And I was baptized in the, in the lake, actually. That's the way to do it, right? <laughs> so anyway, I chased a rabbit. I do that sometimes. Now Here he says, death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus died once. He will not have to die again for sin. It blows my mind that in 1975, when I got saved, he not only had paid for the sins that I had committed up to that point, but he had already paid for the ones I didn't even know about yet. You ever think about that? If you think that you can, I'm back to this losing your salvation thing, I just can't get away from it. If you think that you could lose your salvation because you committed a sin, come on, think about it. How many of your sins were in the future when Jesus paid for them on the cross? All of them. You weren't even born yet. Did he only pay for the ones up to December of 1975 for James Lynch and then later had to pay for the rest? No, he paid for them all. He paid for them all. It's accomplished. It's accomplished. So, if death no longer has dominion over him, guess what? It no longer has dominion over you either. When you physically, your body physically dies, you're immediately in the presence of the Lord. The worst thing that, you can, that can happen to you is you die, but for a Christian... It's kind of the best thing. You wake up and Jesus is there. You no longer have to deal with that old person that you've been dragging around, Chauver, pursuing you all these years. He's gone. But the fact is, you can experience that in this life. So we not only identify with Jesus Christ. We not only identify with his new life, but then we need to talk about the last thing is the power of grace. Where'd that come from? (laughs) See, how do you implement this? How do you put this into practice? It's, It's fine to know theological truth, okay? But what, how do you, how do you put it into practice? How do you make it work for you? How do you live it out? Well, let's read the rest of the story. Verse 10 says, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's your responsibility. You can know the theology. Theology you can know the facts. Jesus died on the cross, and the nature of his substitutionary death is that I died with him. I understand that. Jesus rose from the dead, and so therefore I have, because I'm in Christ, I rose from the dead with him. And then I identified that by getting in a baptistry somewhere and being dipped and brought back up. I've got all that, figured out, that's great. But you need to believe it. You need to consider it so. The old, King James' word, I kind of missed that one on this, was reckon. And that's not the reckon we use around here. You know, I reckon something. It might be true and it might not be. No, it it means to consider it. You know, I just like the word. It's like a bookkeeping word. You take it out of this ledger and you put it over in this ledger. You see, our problem is not a problem of willpower to obey. It really comes down to a problem of faith. It comes down to a problem of faith. Jesus has already taken care of it. He said, death will ha- no longer have dominion over you in verse 9. If you look down in verse 14, he says, sin sh- or shall, no, uh, shall have no dominion over you. I'm sorry, verse, verse 9 talks about dominion over Christ, death having no dominion over Christ, but that also bleeds over into us And then sin will have no dominion over you. What is dominion? It's rule. Sin does not own you anymore. You don't belong to sin. You belong to Christ. It frustrates me sometimes when, and I do this too, when Christians will say, I can't help it, I just have a bad temper. My mother was a redhead, you know. My mother was redhead too. I, 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 I'm just that way because I'm in this family. I, I'm just that way because I'm, I'm, uh, my, my heritage is German. That's the way we are. You know what? You know what that is? That's the old person. If you make excuses like that, you know what you're doing. You're saying, I am still the old person. That is not a statement of faith. You are now a child of God. If you have trusted Him, you are a child of God. You belong to Him. You've been given a new life in Christ. You don't have to live that way anymore. We have an addiction ministry here called Renewal. And it's called renewal for a very, a very specific reason, because it's a new life. Some secular methods of dealing with addiction have you always saying, Hi James, I'm an alcoholic. I'm, my name's James, I'm an alcoholic. Well, if you're in Christ and you used to be an alcoholic, you that's not your identity anymore. If you're in Christ and you used to be addicted to pornography, that's not your identity anymore. Quit believing that stuff. Amen. You don't have to live there. See, this is a matter of faith. He said, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You say, James, that's, that sounds great, but that's not easy. No, it's not easy. But today's a good day to start. If you're in bondage to a sin, or many sins, and you're struggling with that, and you hate it, but you keep going back to it, you need to start believing. Start considering it so that you are dead to that. That doesn't mean you don't take steps to have accountability to get community around you that supports you. But you, you, you do all these means of grace. You stay in the Word of God. You pray. But you need to believe what God has said about you. You don't have to live that way. You are not under the dominion of sin any longer. So what does that look like? Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Do you notice that word Reign? It goes with dominion. Death doesn't have dominion over Christ anymore. It doesn't have reign over Christ, rule over Christ. He died once and he's alive forevermore. And we are in him. Sin will have no dominion over you in verse 14. That's reign. It doesn't have rule over you. You, It doesn't have control over you. So don't let it reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. See, it's your choice. If you're a Christian and you sin, guess whose fault it is? Yours. It's not your mama's. It's not your boss. It's not your obstinate neighbor. Don't say, you made me act that way. No, you chose to act that way. You chose it. Choose to not let your members be controlled by sin. Make the choice. Trust what God has said about you. Verse 13: Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Remember the little children's song, be careful little hands what you do, be careful little feet where you go? That's good advice for adults too. You see, if we set ourselves up, you know, if you're on a donut, I mean a diet, you don't want to work in a donut shop, right? <laughs> you know, if you're really trying to watch your sugar intake, you're not going to hang out at Dunkin' Donuts. I mean, if you hang out at Dunkin' Donuts and say I'm resisting temptation, that's really not very smart. Don't present your bodies to be instruments of unrighteousness. Don't put yourself in position to be tempted. Don't put yourself in position where you, you're likely to fall. Don't do that. But instead, these eyes belong to Jesus. They don't need to be looking at anything that Jesus doesn't want them to look at. This mouth belongs to Christ. It doesn't need to be saying anything that's not pleasing to Jesus Christ and glorifying to His name. This mind belongs to Christ. It needs to be immersed in His Word and in His truth and not filled with junk. That causes me to think things that do not glorify Him. These feet belong to Him. They need to take me places to serve Him. Not take me places to serve myself. Because if I understand that this body, everything that I am, belongs to Jesus. This life is His life. Makes all the difference in the world. How do you do this? You do it by faith. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The law was never given to make us better. The law is ineffective to make us holy. The law was given to identify our sin. Grace. Grace is what makes us holy. Notice this last verse. For sin will... Have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Wait a minute. I thought grace was about my salvation. It is. But grace is also about your sanctification. You are not under dominion of sin any longer. Not because you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. Not because you had more willpower than the next person. You are not under under the dominion of sin any longer because you have been showered by the grace of God. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. You died with him. Your old man has been crucified. And you have been given a new life in Christ. And he said, believe that. Live this life by faith in Christ. And as you do that, You will begin to gain victory over sin. A brand new you. A brand new you. That's who we are. Now, let me close with this. If you're here, and you think that this is just a step-by-step plan to conquer your weaknesses, It doesn't work if you're not in Christ. This is not a how-to-improve-my-life message. That's not what this is. It only works if the reality is true. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, the principles of the New Testament about sanctification really do you no good. Because what they'll lead to is they'll lead to self-righteousness. They'll lead to you thinking about how good you are. And you're not. Neither am I. I'm a hell-deserving sinner. And if my sins were plastered up on this, you probably would never want to let me preach again. I don't deserve the grace of God. None of us do. But folks, let me tell you, the more I recognize what Jesus Christ has done for me. That little boy, 12 years old, had no idea how much he would shame his Savior later. When I realized he still loved me. He knew all the sins I would commit later and He saved me anyway. When He went to that cross, I was guilty of driving those nails in His hands and in His feet. That was my fault. Your fault too. He died for you. He died for me. He took the penalty that I deserved. How could I not live for Him after what He's done for me? How could I say, What you did for me is great. I'll see you when I get to heaven. Don't bother me until then. No, he's a loving Savior. He loves us. He loves us that much. And we don't deserve it. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. If you don't know him, There's no greater life than a life following Jesus Christ. Come to Him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, the truth of Your Word sometimes is hard for us to wrap our minds around. But Lord, I pray that this morning You would help us in our Our faith, our weak faith, oftentimes, to believe what your word says about us. That our old self has died with you. As you say in Colossians, that the the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, you put it away, nailing it to your cross. All of our accusations, all of our sins, all the things we're guilty of, were put to death there. Once for all, Lord, help us to realize the magnitude, the implications of that in our lives today and to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.